Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Andrew Friedman. He is a CFA charter holder and the managing director and communications sector head at Hedgeye. If you're interested at all in some of the market's most exciting industries like entertainment, telecommunications, he is a must follow on Fintwit where he can be found at Hedgeye.com. That's at H-E-D-G-E-Y-E-C-O-M-M. Today, he's going to walk us through these industries and how they're changing through cord cutting and streaming and who some of the winners and losers in this space might be. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Uh, Andrew, why don't you start off just by telling us how you first got into investing and what led to your current position at Hedgeye and, and what yeah. you do there? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun story. Um, so I'm kind of a uh, uh, underdog, maybe you could say. Um, you know, at, at Hedgeye, they call me a mutt because uh, a lot of the folks here have Yale backgrounds and Ivy League backgrounds, and I don't. Um, so I've always kind of going back to you know, even when I was in high school, I've always had a passion for investing, very interested in it. Um, and uh, it's kind of had an interesting path back then that led me to going to school in the Midwest. Um, so I went to uh, Marquette University, um, went through their finance program there, got into one of those uh, investing management groups uh, that was very focused around the CFA. Um, and we would pitch stocks, you know, we would manage, uh, we managed about, I think, a quarter million dollars of the university's endowment. We would have alumni come in and grill us on the stock ideas. And it was something that I've always really enjoyed doing. Um, but, you know, coming out of a school from the Midwest, even though Marquette was a great program, and my background being on the East Coast, there was always, um, you know, limitations. It's, it's a very competitive industry. It's hard to get on the buy side and the sell side. Um, I didn't want to go to banking. That just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get a job uh, at a school for a couple of years, an uh, institutional consulting firm, which gave me a really great macro perspective, doing investment due diligence on uh, money managers, speaking with PMs, doing asset allocation. Uh, and I think that gave me with a great perspective in terms of what doesn't work and what does work um, for a lot of investing strategies by speaking with some of the smartest people that manage billions of dollars. And then also just understanding how asset allocation works and the types of decision makings, uh, decision making that occurs uh, from a pension fund to an endowment foundation. Um, you know, during that time, I just always was kind of a stock junkie. And so I did a lot of, um, you know, my own investment due diligence and my own investing, both for our high net worth clients back then, but also I would post my stuff on like Seeking Alpha to try to get feedback. Um, and then one day a coffee maker got delivered uh, to our office that had the label Hedgeye on it. And it came to our office and we we're like, Hedgeye, what's this? Hedgy, Hedgeye. Um, and so uh, it turned out that back in 2013, Hedgeye was just growing rapidly and moving into the offices that we are now that you see behind me in Stanford and um, did some research on the company that had lots of the investment philosophy and what they were doing really resonated um, with what my passion was. And so I kind of bullied my way in there, went through the interview process, started off in healthcare, uh, cut my teeth doing a lot of stuff in managed care, hospitals, but really focusing a lot of my time on healthcare IT 
So I've done a ton of work historically on like the Teladocs of the world, Cerner, Athena Health when it was public, getting involved in that controversy. And then a couple of years ago, I had this opportunity to take over the internet media and telecom sector and take a lot of what I learned and built uh, from my days in healthcare IT and apply it to this space. So it's been, it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Uh, it's a great culture, uh, great teammates that we have. And, you know, what we're building is just, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very exciting. So it's pretty much my background. Oh, that's great. Oh, I can't wait to, to dive into our conversation today. It, you know, this is just a, a fun industry to talk about because so many of us use and love these companies. So let's just start off with, well, the media and entertainment world is just rapidly changing. Uh, now, there are still songs and TV shows and movies like always. I don't mean to suggest that the content itself is changing, but how people are consuming this content is just rapidly changing. As streaming apps gain in popularity, the cord cutting phenomena only seems to gain momentum. A at this rate, pretty soon, it almost seems like I'm gonna need nine to 10 apps just to watch every show I want <laughs> to. Uh, like, can this keep up? You know, is the cable bundle doomed? Where Where's this space headed? Yeah, I mean, it's like you, you kind of described it perfectly, right? Uh, we're undergoing a massive change in the landscape for content distribution from uh, linear legacy models, primarily distributed through cable, where, you know, the cable companies pay the media companies an affiliate fee or, um, or recurring subscription fee per month uh, based on the number of subscribers that they have, and which is very, very high margin business for the studios and, you know, the, and the entertainment companies. Um, and now we're going over the top. It's going all the, the internet. And that's been pioneered by the Netflix model, which has been wildly successful. And, you know, Netflix success today is largely due to the fact that, you know, the, the uh, studios were willing to license all their content out to, to Netflix early on. Um, but today it, it is changing. And, you know, to your point um, about cord cutting, I think there was a debate on whether it would actually happen four or five years ago. Um, and clearly with the declines that we've seen year over year in excess of 10% uh, cable TV subscribers, uh, subscriber losses for the likes of, you know, AT&T and others, um, you know, it's clearly kind of reached a, reached a tipping point. I think, you know, what people need to understand is that these trends are very long-term and durable and it takes time to change consumer behavior and it's very content driven. So the fact that you know Netflix rose to its dominance and the pay TV bundle finally was was whole, uh, but eventually you know you start spending you know engagement leads everything. So people start spending more time on Netflix and then they can cut the cord. Um, more recently, um, you know I think two years ago people thought that it was just going to be Netflix, 100% Netflix. All the studios were going to license their content to that. All the media companies were going to go bankrupt. Cable was going to go away. Um, but that's clearly not the case, at least today. What we've seen is a lot of these companies clawing back a lot of their content, putting it on their own services, the launch of HBO Max, uh, which is the expanded HBO offering, Comcast Peacock, which is always uh, in the news, especially as it relates to distribution with Roku, which we can touch on that maybe because um, that's a little timely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think what we're going to is a world where that looks kind of similar to the old world of linear channels, but in over the top where you subscribe to, you know, Netflix, Amazon prime, and then you also subscribe to a lot of these other services on the margin. I mean, Disney plus was a wild success. Um, but that means that the audience is fragmenting. Right. And so I think from an investing standpoint, there's ways that you can play this theme over the next three to five years. And this is kind of what we've, you know, put our, um, you know, our flag uh, in the ground here where, 
you know, Netflix is, was the 800, is still the 800 pound gorilla, but we think that on the margin, they're going to lose out on their share of incremental engagement. Uh, and the future growth in OTT is really going to be driven by these new and emerging services. Now, it's not a um, zero sum game here, but I do think that as you give consumers more options, that churn does increase on the margin. Uh, and so that's to the benefit of, I think, a Roku, right? Because uh, Roku and Amazon Prime, uh, Fire TV, these are the future over-the-top platforms. These are your future cable companies. They're the one-to-many. There's no geographical barriers. And so if I'm thinking about growth investing and secular trends over the next three to five years, I'd much rather be long Roku that benefits, in theory, from all these streaming launches, um, also benefits from the advertising trends, and all, and then, you know, on a relative basis, you know, be short or bet against kind of the incumbent here, which is Netflix, um, where I think, you know, their content costs are going to continue to rise exponentially. Um, and then absent, you know, this COVID bump, I think their subscriber trends are going to be very slow and continue to slow here and the multiple compresses. So that's, that's the landscape and it's all content driven. You know, um, the name of the game here is content. You know, Disney was successful despite everybody, thinking that they weren't going to be because of because of the content that they have. And it's also from an ROI perspective, the name of the game is getting the most I possibly can for the least amount. And what we saw was because of the brand power of Disney, that they were able to launch uh, their direct consumer service by leveraging their library and also only coming out with a handful of originals. And, over time, all these companies are going to be investing more and more in the original content. These services get better. So I think it's a great time to be a consumer of entertainment services. That's where the value is accruing uh, in the media landscape. And as an investor, there's a ton of landmines and value traps out there. Um, but I think we're, you know, we've identified you know, where the opportunities are and which ones you know, we think that people should avoid. All right. So you, you touched on uh, that, that's a great overview of the landscape. Uh, you touched on a lot of companies. Let's uh, if you don't mind, let's just go through them one by one. Yeah. Um, so I know last year, I'm, well, I'm almost certain I saw a video. Of you you were very bullish on Disney. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This might have been about a year ago, mm-hmm. um, but that was before COVID-19 hit, you know, it yep. just ground. It's like park revenue and. Uh, like a lot of live sporting events where it has like um, ESPN ties, like it ground those revenue streams almost to a halt. Yep. So how does Disney look right now? You know, what does its future look like? Yeah, I mean, look, we were, our thesis, right, when we first went, were bullish on, on Disney was that Disney Plus is going to be more successful and get more subscribers than anyone else thinks, right? And that clearly played out. Um, and the market wasn't appreciating that. The other part, too, was that the legacy business had to just be status quo, right? So we needed everything like ESPN, the theatrical, to just kind of just stay constant while they built this emerging streaming service on top of it um, and scale that. And then eventually be able to successfully have their you know, foot in both boats and then eventually take the other foot and put it in one boat, which is streaming. Um, and so when COVID hit early on, we quickly took that idea off our, our list, I think in early March, because it was clear that the theme parks were going to take a hit. And this wasn't even a typical recession, right? We're talking outright closure. And so you know, Disney for us today, um, as a relative pair, you know, I think there's better 
ways to allocate your capital um, than buying Disney, um, you know, at, you know, 130, $135 a share. Um, so now, now there's two things, right? The, the theme parks are going to recover. Um, now, how long it takes for them to recover, it's probably going to take longer because um, you not only have to deal with a change in consumer behavior, uh, capacity restrictions due to COVID, um, but also I think we're going to see from a macro perspective, a larger impact to the consumer once all the stimulus money kind of goes away. So it's really hard to see how Disney gets back to anywhere close to its kind of 2019 pre-COVID um, margin structure, uh, as well as growth trajectory. So let's just put that there, right? But that's cyclical, right? And I would argue that a lot of that bad news is probably priced in earlier this year. The other issue though, is around ESPN and the other right. media assets. Because ESPN is the most profitable business, and that's been seeing declining margins because they've been faced with rising programming costs and declining subscribers that are tied to the bundle. Now, they're going to have a really hard time navigating that trend. They were having a hard time navigating that trend before, and there was hope with streaming. Now, with COVID, it's accelerated that trend, right? We've seen um, you know, acceleration uh, with, with live sports going away we've started to see the value proposition of the bundle come undone even further. And so now the real question is, can they monetize streaming at the same rate that they, they were able to do, uh, you know, pre COVID and, you know, the way that compared to the profitability these businesses are uh, today with these existing distribution structures. And I just don't think that's going to be possible. Um, you know, it was one case where we could see the business being stable and then streaming, the rise of streaming on top of that, that's great. But today, I think that's very, it's much more challenged. Now that could provide an opportunity. And so I think uh, you, you had a really interesting tweet um, that we engaged on and your question was, and I, I don't mean to steal your thunder. Yeah, yeah, let's go, question. let's do it. Let's but do you it. asked, you know, would you be, like if you had to invest in one company, like for the next decade, would it be Comcast or, or Disney or, or Netflix? Um, and the thing that I struggle with with Disney is that is a, such a huge bet on management. As an investor, uh, you have to have so much confidence that they can basically just blow up their business model, take advantage of COVID, and take all their content as fast as they can off these existing legacy distribution models and provide enough value over to the streaming side fast enough and monetize it in an equivalent way. And it's possible. You know, um, but there's a lot of rights agreements and existing contracts in place that make that very difficult to do. Um, but it's a really great story if they can actually make it work, but it's going to be very hard. So I think you have to have a lot of confidence in Chapek and that management team. Iger is still operating in the background. Um, I think we're going to continue to see success with the Mandalorian coming out in October and as some of these other original content uh, pieces get released. Um, but at this valuation, because evaluation is still important, in my opinion, I think it's a really tough bet to make, um, you know, for the long term. Now, could I be wrong? 100%. Um, but I just think I would much rather be long today, something like a Comcast that has a very uh, profitable cable business that I think is undervalued um, dramatically. Uh, as a, as a, as as an investment for the next call it twelve months, and then you know see how Disney progresses 
Um, they're having an investor day coming up in Q4. They'll probably raise their subscriber numbers. Um, and that could be a positive cause for the stock. I think investors generally want Disney to blow up their model. They want them to come out and be like, look, our P&L's gone you know, to zero. We have our earnings power today is very minimal, but we at least have the cost cuts in place to generate some free cash flow. So it's not like um, some of these other out-of-home entertainment companies that are just basically burning cash and going, you know, potentially go to zero. Um, they have these high-quality brands and assets, but they need to come up with a very aggressive plan how to position themselves. And within crisis and recession comes opportunity. And so that's going to be Chapik's legacy. He has to fundamentally transform the Disney company and put it on an accelerated timeline where they may have thought they were five, six years, seven years from now. They have to make that happen tomorrow. And I just not sure I have the confidence relative to the current price to, to say, let's be long Walt Disney company here. Um, so that's kind of, you know, what sure. about Disney today. I, I mean, they do, they have an incredible balancing act they must do. Right. And, and it's, and it's like, it, it's just like, it, it'll be hard to pull off at the same time that intellectual property, like there's very few companies that I look at and say, well, they can't be disrupted. Like, you know, like, like even like some of the, the companies I love, whether they're tech giants or, or whatever, I, th- there's a path where, well, they could be disrupted. That intellectual property that Disney has those with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the For Star sure. Wars, picks, I mean, I have four children, so I'm, I'm just well aware <laughs> of yeah. like how sticky this content can be. Um, you know, my, my 14-year-old son, like the day the Mandalorian 2 trailer came out uh, or the season 2 trailer came out, which was just like this week, he, you know, like as soon as I got home, he's like, Dad, did you see the trailer? Did you see the trailer? <laughs> um, you know, so I feel like there might be missteps along the way, but long term, uh, and I'm not saying we wouldn't see better prices at some point either, mm-hmm. but long term, I feel like because of that intellectual property, like they have time to figure it out. Yeah, look, that asset, the assets that they have, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we were so bullish on it last year and that we, why we thought direct-to-consumer was going to be a huge success. Look, I was telling, I was talking about them having 30 million subs in year one, and I was and speaking with very sophisticated hedge fund buy-side clients and internet investors, and they're looking at me, has anything like that ever happened in the history of the internet before? Because everyone was thinking four to five million subs, let's talk let's look at netflix as a proxy um but the reality is that netflix had to build and invest and establish their brand i've been on the record saying multiple times that netflix is trying to do in two or in five years what the rest of the media industry has built in a hundred years and it takes a very long time to build up that type those types of brands those that intellectual property um and disney has a lock on it and so yeah, the barriers to entry in the, or the ability to disrupt Disney, it's, it's, you know, Netflix is trying, right? Reed Hastings right. came out and said, we're just going to spend more. We're going to look, ex, you know, Ted Sarandos is saying we're going to explore various universes um, because they know that the way to, to really, because they know that the way streaming is today, that the barriers to entry, at least from the major, you know, tech guys and the media companies is not that high. Um, and so therefore the only way they can differentiate themselves is by having these big tenfold brands, which they have to build like, and they have some of them, stranger things, um, orange is the new black, although they don't really own the rights to those. Um, you know, they've, they've had a money heist, which has been huge and they need to continue to do that to be successful. Um, 
and also generate high incremental returns on capital. Um, and Disney has that, and that's why they were so successful. Taking a step back though, um, when we were talking about this transition, it's all about monetization, right? And so we can talk about what ARPU looks like, um, which is average revenue per user for Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN. But really what you have to think about is all the people that buy something from Disney, the theme parks, the home video, TVOT, streaming services, and what is ARPU and monetization look like on a corporate basis, right? And then the question is, in the future state, is Disney going to be able to monetize those users at the equivalent of rate across all assets, all their properties, not just streaming? Streaming is incredibly important part of it, but you know, are they going to go? I'm, I'm just going to make up numbers here, right? But let's say yeah, they uh, generate a thousand dollars a year across, uh, per uh, per every consumer that touches Disney um, in 2019. Let's say that goes down to five hundred dollars this year. Um, if they transform their business model are they still going to be able to get back to that thousand? And maybe they don't, maybe they don't need to get back to that a thousand, maybe it's 750, but it's a much higher margin business on the backside because they can strip out all these costs and use COVID as ability to transform the company and get rid of all the baggage. Um, again, that is, I think that's a very interesting, interesting thought experiment and it's possible. And the, your point on the brands, they're in a unique position to do that because they have the assets, they have that IP. So I wouldn't want to say I would bet against Disney, um, but, you know, Chapik has his work cut out for him. They and, do. They do. You know, hopefully I think, you know, they can figure it out. I'm not saying Disney goes away, but obviously not. But I think, you know, the question becomes like, what's the earnings power of this company and how much you're willing to pay for that? Um, because you can have the best assets, but if the market, but if you've been over earning in, a, in a, an environment where it's been essentially inflated by the pay TV bundle for years, what does it look like on the other side? So that's, and that's a very hard question to answer um, for anybody and I, even Disney management, I'm sure. So it's going to be interesting to see what they have to say at their investor day. Sure. Yeah. I, I almost, at this point, I think we can make the whole show about Disney, but let's, let's move on. Sure, let's go. Um, uh, Netflix, right? So this was a pioneer in the streaming space and longtime shareholders have certainly been richly rewarded uh, for it. Uh, but like as you alluded to earlier, like they, they kind of like got off, they, they launched quickly because they were able to uh, get all this content from traditional media companies and put it on the platform. And now it's just having to pour more and more money to launch original content uh, to gain subscribers and keep subscribers. Yep. So how, how is Netflix positioned for the future? I think they're, look, Netflix isn't going away. Um, I think they run a very high risk business model, but one that's, you know, necessary in order for them to compete, keep what they have and grow on the margin. Um, I do wonder, I, I do think that Netflix's role in the bundle. So, so let me give you some stats, just top down. Okay. Um, Netflix has about 65 million subscribers in the U S all right. There's about a hundred million or so pay TV households. So Netflix is approximately 65% penetrated in the U S market, right? Um, the surveys we've run, okay, suggest that actual SVOD penetration of all the streaming video on demand services in the US is actually closer to 90%. So the streaming video on demand market for subscription and OTT services is mature. 
Now the question becomes, okay, if Netflix has 65% and 65 million subscribers, right? And then you have 90 million of the total subscribers in the market. So where's the 25 million? And what we find is that as Amazon Prime Video and all these other services start to scale, you're starting to see a cohort of the market start to adopt other streaming services as their core. And that's not because, um, you know, and, and that in the demographic tends to be more price sensitive, right? For Amazon Prime, it tends to be uh, consumers that are self-described as not really content connoisseurs, right? Um, they're not just ferociously, you know, going after and consuming content. Um, but that's the point. So I think the market is slowly starting to fragment and Amazon and Apple TV and all these services are going to continue to invest, continue to grow, grow and get more content, which provides an alternative, a substitute um, to Netflix to some extent. And I think that Netflix's share of engagement, share of voice and time spent uh, is going to diminish. And so what does that mean? That means that Netflix is hitting maturity in the US as well as in a lot of the developed markets, which are the highest ARPU countries. At the same time, competition is increasing. They're gonna be losing out on the share of engagement. If Netflix wants to maintain their current share or grow their share where they're already, you know, basically the dominant player today against all these services, they're going to have to spend much more money increase the output, increase the quality of output in order to just keep what they have, or they risk um, essentially just losing out and the market fragmenting, which I think is inevitably what's gonna happen. Um, so we already know that they have a, a, an adoption issue in terms of the number of subscribers and potential, which by the way, I'm convinced, you know, I know the bulls out there say that they're gonna get to like 500 million subs by 2030. I just don't think it's, I don't think that's gonna happen. Um, and they're also facing, um, and, and that's just math. That's just like looking at adoption rates in developed countries and, and the U.S. Now, there's opportunities in developing countries like India and Southeast Asia. Uh, but the problem there is that the revenue per user is coming in at a much lower price point, 2 to $4. Um, and so you have a negative mix shift on the ARPU side. Um, and they're also coming off of what's a pretty, been a pretty good run in pricing power, where they had a big price increase last year. And I still think that there's more room to go, but the question becomes revenue maximization, right? Uh, elasticity of demand. So can they continue to raise price while also growing subscribers? And all the pricing analysis that we've done, especially with more competition coming into place, Disney Plus launching at $6.99 a month, the whole bundle coming in, HBO Max trying to get, trying to work a little bit downstream, the rise of AVOD um, with Comcast providing a ton of great content that's ad supported. Um, you know, it, it does, I think, limit Netflix's pricing power. And what we've seen is that $10 a month is the line, of the line in the sand. And then price sensitivity really starts to become greater once a service price is above $10. Um, and that's where Netflix is. They're facing market saturation. I think they're coming up on the upper end of what they can actually afford to price their service without risking uh, a bigger increase in subscriber churn. At the same time, competition is coming. Um, you know, people are going to subscribe to multiple services, but that means that they're also going to probably bounce around and churn more. Um, and it's tough. I mean, especially yeah. relative to the free cash flow profile. So I That's think something I've actually already done. Like, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt, but no, like, no, uh, please do. I'll just talk like, forever. <laughs> it, it, it's like uh, we 
when, when Disney Plus, I mean, we try, I try to be a little frugal, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I should be more frugal, but, uh, but right. <laughs> but as a family, like with four kids, when Disney Plus came out, we were like, you know, we cut Netflix for six months and we're back on Netflix now, but like we cut it for six months. And then in the future, we're like, well, do we want this or, or this? Like, you know, like I, I could see cutting it again for six months. And, yeah. and we've been on Netflix's platform forever, but with competition, it's like, well, it, it's not hard to, to like say, let's catch up on all our shows on Netflix. We're going to cut it for six months or whatever. And, and we'll be, you know, so now instead of getting like 12 months from me, they're getting six months, you know, let's say, yeah. or, or whatever. And, and, and I think you're, what you just described is a very underappreciated point of the churn model. Because yeah. one of the points of pushback I get when I talk about churn is like, well, these users just are going to come back. And it's like, of course they're going to come back. Or maybe they won't. Maybe they'll turn off forever. But like, odds are they're going to come back. But when you think about a subscription business and churn math, right? Churn is churn. You know, right. uh, it's like you can subscribe on and off, you know, three times throughout the year. I've done that. I've subscribed on and off. Because there's not something I always want to watch on right. Netflix. Or there's another show. Like, I mean, between some of the stuff that we're watching anecdotally, just like from my household and like HBO Max and Comcast, with these new services, um, I've canceled my Netflix subscription because why am I going to pay twelve ninety nine, you know, fifteen ninety nine a month if I'm if I'm not going to use it? Um, will I come back? Sure, or you yeah. know, maybe I'll just borrow someone else's password, God forbid, and just right, like, watch right. a show I want for a couple months. So, I, but it's a tough. It's a really, it's it's a tough market. It's a really tough market. But you know, Netflix is the leader. They have the best churn numbers. Um, and so it's not that I think that it's a bad company on an absolute basis um, or that they don't have a brand. I just think that on the margin, if I think about where we're going over the next three to five years, it's just things are going to be working against them more so than working for them. Sure. So uh, let's talk about another company now. Um, and one of my colleagues, Austin Lieberman, is very bullish on this company. And I think you are as well. And it's Roku. Uh, many investors still think of Roku as a quote unquote device company because the devices are very popular in the streaming industry, but is that the right way to think of this company? No, I mean, when, so it's like similar to Peloton, uh, you know, um, where it's, where you have like an underappreciated business transformation, right? And sometimes those are the best longs because that's when the multiple re-rates. And when, you know, Roku went public, it was 90% hardware business making no money, right? So what do you pay for that? You pay like two times sales. Um, What Roku has successfully managed to do so far is transform their business from a hardware business to a platform business. And the platform business has structurally higher operating margins, gross margins, um, and it's also growing much, much faster. And so the hardware business is essentially customer acquisition costs to drive growth for the platform side, which is growing like a weed. It did hit a little bit of a bump due to COVID. Um, but you know, the future of this company five years from now, it's going to be a platform business, not unlike any of these other internet platforms. It's going to be advertising driven through connected TV. Um, it's going to be the platform where you manage all your subscriptions on and rent movies. Um, and also it's going to be a great place for brands to reach their consumers that have cut the cord, right? That unduplicated audience, I think is going to be incredibly valuable. Um, because right now the big issue when we were in the beginning of this conversation, we we're talking about transitions is that yes, you have like one of the issues with pay TV and the cord cutting is advertisers are still spending $70 billion a year 
on TV ads and it's getting more and more expensive to do so. And it was only until three, two, three years ago where you actually had a viable CTV platform um, for advertisers to spend on, um, you know, with Hulu and Roku. And so I think we're very early days there and there's a long runway ahead for Roku to transform its business into one of the largest uh, connected TV platform models. Um, doesn't mean with that, it's not without its risks um, and volatility, but it is one of my favorite names, uh, growth names in my space at least. Um, and I've done a lot of work there and have a lot of conviction in that one alongside, um, even though it's been a rough road. Um, but we were long since early 2019. So, you know, our cost basis there is pretty low. Right, right. So like, what would you say to like the objection or like if somebody objected, like, well, what's to stop like Samsung and LG and all the other TV makers mm -hmm. to just kind of like make their own, well, I guess they, for lack they, of a better turn. Yeah, no, they, they, well, I mean, so like the bull case and I'm not, it's funny, people call like Roku the operating system for TV and it is um, at its core. It's like, you know, very similar to this market, similar to kind of, um, you know, smartphones and the app store and Google and how eventually it just kind of migrated around two major players when, you know, it used to be research in motion with Ren, Microsoft, et cetera. Um, but the reality is that Roku has been competing against these large companies forever. I mean, Samsung has Tizen, which is their operating system. LG has their web OS. Um, what else? Um, we've seen these other platforms just, you know, they, they're, they require a lot of, um, they're very high cost to build, very memory intensive platforms. I have a Samsung TV and I don't use it. So I use, I mean, I use the TV because I think it right. has great hardware, but I use a Roku. I have Roku HD that I plug into. And that's just the function of the fact that my smart hub in my Roku, in my smart Samsung TV, I had to reset and lose all my passwords every two months. And then I was on right. support with Samsung. It was just a terrible experience. It was awful. And then when they would update, it would be, the hardware wasn't compliant or it wasn't good enough. And so everything would start to lag and slow down. And it was just a nightmare. And so I bought a, a Roku Ultra HD and it's great. And actually the survey work we've done suggests that about 65% of smart TV households are actually not using the, um, the operating system that came built in with the TV, like this, like in my Samsung example, they are using a Roku. So what was like the big point of pushback, um, you know, for it's a platform company, so it's all about in disintermediation. And I think that there's a lot of structural reasons, especially on the cost side and consumer experience that give Roku uh, a leg up there, especially with the contracts that they have with TCL and some of the major Chinese OEMs. Um, you know, there is the risk always that Google, um, you know, is, is getting more aggressive. And so will they pay the manufacturers to get, um, have Android installed in their TVs? And I think that's certainly a possibility, but the, it still doesn't come down to the, the end of the day where, um, you know, what's a better experience. And so TCL went from no market share to 35% market share of smart TVs in the U.S., riding Roku and they're going to do the same thing in, in North America or sorry, in Europe and Latin America. And, and we're still early on there. So, you know, that's, I think they're much stickier in the supply chain and embedded there than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Um, and then Amazon, I don't think is even a credible threat, um, frankly, for fire TV as an operating system, not as a stick, but as, as, as licensing out sure. because 
it's a forked version of Android and it's very expensive. Um, and it can also be jailbroken too. And so because it can be jailbroken, the question becomes as a media company, do you want to distribute your content on a platform that where people can just jailbreak it and get your content for free and steal it? So, um, but that's kind of inside. Gotcha. All right. So now, um, so last week or so, I tweeted out a poll and I was wondering what your take on this would be. I said, which of these legacy media companies will provide shareholders with the greatest total returns over the next 10 years? And the choices were Discovery, which operates uh, the Discovery Channel. I, I mean, I know you know this, but the Discovery yeah, no. Channel, the Travel Channel, um, the, the Learning Channel, a, a bunch of other channels like that. Uh, Fox, which still has a lot of regional Fox Sports Networks and um, Fox News, obviously. The New York Times and Viacom CBS. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> How would you answer that question? Well, so first of all, for those who are listening, I have not seen that poll, so there's no bias here. So I'm just going <laughs> to tell you exactly what I would think in order. Um, and it is hard. Uh, so my, my go-to, when I think about legacy media, I tend to think that broadcast has a leg up still relative to traditional cable. So with that being said, um, we immediately take Fox, A, okay. and Viacom kind of put it to the top of the list. Then the second question becomes, what are their digital assets and what are their content assets look like? And so Viacom um, has Pluto TV, which is growing like a weed. Um, they also have um, Paramount and the studio business and CBS. Um, now there are issues around sports rights and what that's gonna impact for margins look like for Viacom. Um, and then, you know, Fox has Tubi, which they purchased. Uh, they actually were an investor in Roku, sold that earlier this year to buy Tubi. Um, so, and what was the duration? Three to five years? Uh, 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. Well, oh. whatever. Just take five years. Five years Yeah, no, five I mean, I don't fine. know. We're all yeah, dead. I mean, we're all just playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever. Um, oh, it's that, that's a famous quote there. Uh, I would probably say... In 10 years, I'll have you back to have you answer for this. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, hopefully we're all on a beach somewhere by then. Um, <laughs> right. I would probably say, oh God, Viacom. I would say Viacom. That won the poll. It won the poll. Okay, whatever good. That's worth. Yeah, I would say Vi I would say Viacom, Fox, and then you know Discovery. Okay. So I mean, Discovery has great assets. They do, but I just don't know if they have the distribution in place. Um, and I don't know if they can make that switch to OTT. Um, and but, yeah, I'm not familiar with any of these names, but whenever I do a poll, like the next, after the results are in, like, I'll, I'll just like go through real quickly, like a, a thread where like, I just yeah. look at Y charts for, for them on different metrics. Mm -hmm. And after I was done with that discovery right it's now, super cheap, looked the most interesting, right? It is, it, it, its margins were cheap. decent and its yeah. valuation is super cheap. Yeah, you got like John Malone in there too, which right. is helpful. Um, yeah, and it's very cheap on a free cash flow basis, but there is debt. I mean, the issue, and we saw this with like, we were short AMCX, AMC Networks, which was like basically just The Walking Dead. And then we were also short Viacom CBS all last year. Um, we shorted that thing all the way to like 12 bucks. <laughs> so <laughs> it worked. Uh, and then earlier, <laughs> earlier this year, it was just like, eh, it's not gonna work. Um, it's, it's not worth it anymore. Same thing with AMCX. Um, but, you know, it, the issue is just around cheap gets cheaper. And so the question with discoveries, you have to ask yourself as an investor, yeah, it looks cheap, but like, 
are they going to be able to is free cash flow today going to be greater sure. or smaller three years from now five years from now ten years from now and i think you could probably make a strong argument that their free cash flow is declining and that you know what is the value of discovery as a standalone company or does it just get super cheap and does it get snatched up by a larger network or somebody that can take that content and monetize it better um but you know viacom cbs has had a nice run it's, you know and it's still relatively attractive but there's there's challenges in legacy media right oh yeah for sure so, for so sure. many so it's hard it's, you got a lot of alignments you have to dodge. Are there any other surprise winners or surprise losers that you see in this overall landscape uh, that we haven't touched on? Um, surprise winners or surprise losers? Um, no, I mean, I think we kind of hit on it. Nothing that's like, I don't, you know, nothing that's like super, um, like super like gems that are like undiscovered. Right. Um, I think that the themes are fairly straightforward. Um, and the, you know, I think that if anything, probably people are just still too optimistic on Netflix, which I think is going to, you know, probably show up in this quarter's results and, you know, the next kind of six to nine months. Um, Roku, I still think, you know, despite it being almost a 20 billion EV now is still a lot of people don't understand that company, which is great because I think that means that, you know, the more debates I have about people about it being a hardware business makes me more bullish because that means that people just fundamentally just don't understand this business. And so that there's actually a larger investor base out there for them to come to, to realize that this is a great growth story and start to invest. So that's, that's also where the opportunity is. Um, but um, so, you know, I, I do think, you know, Roku would be my horse to ride 100%, um, you know, going forward. And then Avod generally, I think there's a lot of skepticism around the Tubi and, um, you know, which Fox bought, like I said before, and like Pluto TV, because investors are largely like, who wants ads? What's, you know, who needs ads? And it's like, there's a large portion of the population that will take ads for a subsidized price. And there's, sure, a, and sure. there's, a, there's a market for it. So I think those assets are underappreciated. And we could see an interesting scenario where for Fox and Viacom, which is why I kind of picked those two, where it's possible that those businesses that are growing very fast eventually become more than 50% of the business and therefore the consolidated growth rate and flex. And then we're kind of off to the races. Sure. All right. One last question. Uh, last night, I think it was last night, uh, you tweeted something. Uh, it was, uh, you retweeted something. It was about the TikTok IPO and yeah. you just tweeted, you quote tweeted it and said, yes. So are you, <laughs> are you a buyer of the TikTok IPO? Look, I, I've looked at the numbers, uh, like what TikTok has been able to do from a virality standpoint and monetization standpoint, it's just been remarkable. Um, you know, it, it puts, it puts everyone to shame except Facebook, because, uh, you know, they're kind of on a similar path. And it also makes you wonder what, what Twitter did wrong when it came to their purchase of Vine. Well, that didn't, you know, it's bad timing, right? Um, but, you know, I don't know, everything has a price and I think it's an interesting platform and there's the, the engagement metrics, like I said, on the data side from the app download stuff um, and time spent is just exploding. Um, so I think I am definitely bullish on TikTok from everything that I've seen and know now. Uh, the question just always becomes like if they file in the U.S., and we get an S1 and we go through our process and tear it down and do all of our channel techs and figure out what it's worth. You know, if TikTok US comes public and, you know, it's, uh, you know, it goes public at like 100, 
you know, maybe price is at 50, 60 billion and trades open at like 120, 130 billion or 150 billion. I mean, we saw what happened with the Snowflake IPO. So, so, you know, then it's like, well, get, you know, okay, it's probably short. Sure, know, sure, sure. There's nothing left. But I do think that the growth is undeniable. You can't ignore it. Um, it's top of mind for a lot of advertisers and the engagement is, is, is fairly uh, astounding, uh, especially relative to the snap. So, um, you know, I've actually been thinking that maybe if that goes public, it's a, it's potentially a, it's more negative for like a Snapchat on the margin, right? Uh, from just an investor's source of capital. Uh, but when I said yes, I mean, I'm just, you know, it's, it's being me being a little bit selfish here, right? Because as, <laughs> sure. you know, as analysts, as like public equity analysts, like, <laughs> that covers this space, I would love to be able to cover TikTok, you know, and have more market cap and, and, and interesting company, you know, rather than if it gets like carved up between US and XUS and gets owned by Microsoft or Walmart or Oracle, like that's not fun. That's kind of sad. It's kind of boring. So let's get this thing public. Let's break it open. Let's keep it a global company. I, you know, Kevin Mayer, man, that guy who's, you know, he's the former uh, uh, director consumer head at Disney and he launched their, their whole, you know, Disney plus and everyone thought he was going to be the new CEO, which ended up not being the case, but he went over to TikTok earlier this year to, to lead the, the global company. And, you know, and because of the policy and political dynamics that unfolded, he then resigned, but man, would that be just bittersweet if, turns out that they actually go public as a separate company right. in the U.S. and he could have been the right. CEO to, you know. It seems like he's the real loser in all of this. It's, because you know, I don't he know. He went there yeah. and then like all this stuff happened and he left and now. Like, I think we've all kind of as investors gotten too caught up in the short term and trading, right? And so there's that concept of getting whipsawed as a trader where you may be right in the long term, but then you just execute terribly. And so, you, you know, you buy at the wrong time, sell at the same long time. I just kind of think about it like that. You know, right. where he's just potentially, he played himself, that he's just get, got himself whipsawed, um, maybe making decisions in haste, and his ego getting the best of him. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Right. Sure. Yep. It's, not like he's, it's not like I have him on my cell phone. <laughs> um, right, but, right. you know, just reading the tea leaves, it's just one of those situations where it's, it's tough but it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I'd love to see a TikTok IPO be, be a lot of fun. For sure. For sure. Well, let's, let's wrap up our conversation there. Andrew, where can people find you if they're interested in following you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we're all over Twitter, everyone at Hedgeye, but you can find me on Twitter at Hedgeye.com. You could also find us at Hedgeye.com. Uh, we have a, a large institutional business, but we're starting to get um, more so into the middle market space for professional investors by launching some new products. Uh, so there's, you'll see more from us on that. I'm launching uh, Communications Pro, which is going to be a lot of uh, what we do on the institutional side, but uh, you know, breaking that open to more investors in a very uh, hyper-focused, very um, you know, deep format. So it's going to be a lot of good data, all focused on the internet media telecom space. So um, I look forward to that uh, happening in Q4. And uh, I think uh, you know, if, you get, if you guys subscribe and want to get feedback, love to hear it. Oh, that's great. Uh, Andrew Friedman, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing investing with us. Again, I'm Matthew Cochran, lead advisor with 7investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone.
reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.